Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 4. And this morning we'll read just the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray together. O Lord, you've said in your word that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We come this morning to this particular section of your inspired scriptures, and we believe, as has been written in the book itself, that all scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. And so we pray that as we come before your word, breathed out by God himself, We pray that you would enliven our hearts and our minds to uh, receive benefit from the Word of God. And may you open our minds and our hearts to teach us the Word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like you to entertain uh, a hypothetical, uh, a fiction for the moment. I want you to imagine that uh, somehow, some way, um, you... Somehow it was conferred upon you the status of bishop over all the churches in Winston-Salem. You are sort of uh, uh, the chief in charge of the administration of the churches in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. All the pastors of the various churches are supposed to submit to you and they're supposed to come and give you reports and receive instruction from you as the one who's over all of these uh, churches in this particular area. I said it's a hypothetical, it's a fiction. None of us will ever rise uh, to that status, that posture in Winston-Salem. But imagine you have a, a church conference. All the leaders from all the churches and various uh, core members from various churches come and they meet, perhaps even in this building. Uh, they meet upstairs. We have a big church conference. And this is your opportunity as bishop of the region uh, to convey certain things, certain burdens that are important to you and to communicate major priorities to these churches. And here you have this opportunity to instruct a large body of people who have influence over an even larger body of churches and individual Christians in this area. And this is your chance to tell them what ought to be their priorities, what they ought to be instructing their churches in, and what they ought to be walking in as a group of local churches. Here's your window. What would you say to those pastors, those church leaders congregated together? Uh, What would be on the top of your list, at the top of your agenda for churches in this area? It might be on your mind that you want to encourage as a matter of first importance uh, that that all the leaders and all the members in these churches are vigorously engaged in personal evangelism. And that would be legitimate. I mean, how uh, important and crucial to the church's mission is personal evangelism. Uh, You might also think, uh, you know, as as the first thing I want to say, I want to commend holding fast to sound doctrine. That is the need of the hour. That's what these churches need to be doing. And who could quarrel with you? How important is it that we hold fast to sound doctrine? 
We might say it's so crucial that these pastors are praying for and teaching for and thinking about nurturing personal piety and godliness in the lives of their members. And again, so crucial to the life and mission of the church. We now want to move from the hypothetical to the reality. The fact is, Paul was in not the same situation, but a similar situation in writing the book of Ephesians. Paul was an apostle. He had special authority granted him by the risen Christ who he saw with his own eyes. And he was in a unique way positioned to give authoritative instruction to various churches throughout the world. And we've mentioned this before earlier on in the series, but uh, scholars debate as to whether the book of Ephesians was written to one particular local congregation or whether it was a network of various churches in the region of Ephesus. We don't actually know the answer to that question, but it was probably a large body of Christian people and a large body of church leaders and pastors who were overseeing those churches. And here in Ephesians, Paul has the opportunity to give priorities and instructions and, 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 and information to the church by which they're to live. He has this agenda that he brings to them. And we've seen in the first three chapters of Ephesians that all the material is largely theological. He's telling them what they ought to believe. But then there's this transition that we considered last week in Ephesians 4.1. With the word, therefore, Paul says, in light of all that's true, in light of the indicative truths of the gospel and of God's word and his plans of redemption in Christ Jesus, now I want to talk to you about how you're supposed to live. How you're supposed to walk. But how you're supposed to conduct yourself. And this morning, I want us to see what is the matter of first importance. The very first thing that Paul goes to as he starts bringing to the people various imperatives for how they're to walk as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please read with me again Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In our regular exposition of Ephesians, we're going to consider this morning just verses 2 and 3. Deliberately, we're slowing down now in chapter 4 because in many ways, I think chapter 4 is the climax of the book. And in our text, there's this uh, crucial priority that Paul wants to convey, and that is that these Ephesians, in their particular church, their particular context, are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's the first subject that Paul goes to in Ephesians chapter 4? It's this idea of unity. It doesn't diminish the importance of other things he might have gone to, but the issue of primary importance to Paul, the first thing he goes to, the priority for Paul is that these Ephesians would be eager to maintain unity in their church context. So we're going to see everything that we consider today moves toward this priority of unity. Just two points this morning that I'd like us to use to open up verses 2 and 3. First of all, I want you to notice with me the characteristics of the Christian's walk. They're to walk worthy of the calling to which they have been called, what are the characteristics that ought to accompany that walk? We can think of them as walking companions for the Christian in his Christian walk. Characteristics of the Christian's walk. And secondly, we want to see priorities of the Christian's walk. Characteristics of the Christian's walk, and then secondly, priorities of the Christian's walk. First of all, look with me 
at what I'm calling characteristics of the Christian's walk. And there are three in our text. Looking at verse 2, with all humility, that's the first. And gentleness, that's the second. And with patience, characteristics of the Christian's walk. First of all, look with me at humility, or what could be translated lowliness. P.T. O'Brien commenting on this text observes that this term humility, uh, first of all, rarely occurred in Greek literature and Greco-Roman culture in those days. And when it occurred, it was only in the derogatory sense of servility or weakness or a shameful kind of lowliness. Humility in this age, in Greco-Roman culture, was not seen as a virtue. Uh, I, I would think in general, in our day and age, we, we tend to think of humility in positive terms. Being a humble person is a good thing. But it was not so in Jesus' day. It was not so in Paul's day. Uh, humility was by no means seen as a virtue, as a weakness. And it was a sign of humiliating lowliness. It was a shame to you to be considered humble and in a lowly posture. However, one of the distinguishing marks in that day and age of the Christian scriptures is that humility is always seen as a virtue. The term in our text is also used frequently in the Old Testament, often with the idea of the humble or the lowly being exalted, being lifted up, being specially favored by God or approved by God or exalted by God. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see the same thing. What we learn in the New Testament is that there are few things more pleasing to Christ than humility. Humility is a virtue is one of those things that is most close to the heart of the Lord Jesus. I think we in our day and age need to hear this. I think there are some who view humility as a virtue, that it's something that's blessed, something that's good. But at the same time, I think our culture does glorify, in some sense, pride or arrogance or self-promotion or self-sufficiency or making your own way or getting your due. Uh, Humility, I don't think, is seen as the virtue that it would have been seen as some hundreds of years ago. In our day and age, being self-promoting and self-assertive and prideful and standing on your own two feet and your own rights is seen as somehow virtuous. We need to hear that in such a culture, in such a climate that glorifies bravado, humility, lowliness, is precious to Christ and close to the heart of God. Let me just throw out a few texts for you that commend the virtue of humility. Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Of a similar idea contained in Isaiah 57, verse 15, which reads, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says this, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a scene. God is in this place of of height and eternity and holiness, and yet the one that he looks to, The one that he wants to lift up and revive, it is the humble man. It is the lowly woman. It is the one who is of a humble and contrite spirit and trembles at the word of God. Proverbs 29 verse 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. 
Matthew 23, verse 12, the words of the Lord Jesus, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we should never forget the words of James 4 and verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. He resists the proud, but he freely offers grace to those who are humble. God's heart is inclined toward humble people. He loves humility, and we see this most plainly in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In the God-man, in Jesus Christ, we see the greatest expression of humility. Jesus is the ultimate model of humility. And in reflecting on this idea of humility this week, especially the idea in those early days, those early centuries, that humility would have been seen as somehow um, shameful, and it wasn't seen as a virtue, one of the things Christ does in His earthly ministry is to reclaim humility as a virtue, as something good, something godly, something to be commended. Christ accomplished that through coming in human form, taking the posture of a servant and going to the cross and suffering for the sake of his people and rising again. He he reclaims humility as a virtue. And we see this in the passage that was even read earlier in the sermon in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll just read a few verses. Paul tells the Philippians to have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking to himself the form of a servant being formed in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And the text goes on to say Christ highly exalted him. And he was pleased with the humility that Christ evidenced by coming into the world and suffering on the cross. Humility is understood as a virtue in the Scriptures. Well, how does this affect the subject of unity? How does this affect how we walk as brothers and sisters among one another in the context of the church? Well, I expect your minds have already gone to manifold applications. We just spin on applications all day long of how being possessed with humility is not only pleasing to God, but tends toward humility in the context of His church. Let me ask you to test this statement. Is it safe to say that most problems in interpersonal relationships in the church stem from pride, from the lack of humility? If that's an overstatement, it's barely an overstatement. That most problems in the church and interpersonal relationships stem from pride. John Stott, the great Christian thinker who I heartily commend to you, he writes this. Now, humility is essential to unity. Pride lurks behind all discord. While the greatest single secret to concord, that is unity, is humility. Remember that statement from John Stott. Pride is lurking behind all discord in the church. Lurks behind all disunity, all division. Pride is almost always present. And where can we see in the church pride lurking? Well, we see it in the need that we have to be recognized publicly. We see it in the need to have a high station in the church. In the need to have our gifts applauded. In the need to have our preferences satisfied and to get our way in church situations. 
in the need to be vindicated in church disputes and to be shown to be right when we believe that we've been wrong. Pride lurks behind all of these impulses that we natively feel in our own hearts, don't we? Pride lurks behind all disunity in the church. Commenting on this text, John Calvin writes this, Let us remember that in cultivating brotherly kindness, we must begin with humility. Whence comes rudeness? pride and disdainful language towards brethren whence comes quarrels insults and reproaches come they not from this that everyone carries his love of himself and his regard to his own interests to excess he's saying we we love ourselves too much and we think of our interests too highly and we esteem too highly our opinion and getting our way in the context of the church He says this, by laying aside haughtiness and a desire of pleasing ourselves, we shall become meek and gentle and acquire that moderation of temper which will overlook and forgive many things in the conduct of our brethren. Friends, remember Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. How necessary is humility in the church and for the preservation of unity? It is one of the chief characteristics of the Christian's walk. But now secondly, look with me at the second characteristic of the Christian's walk, and that is gentleness. We're to walk with humility and with gentleness. What is gentleness? Uh, It's also translated in the New Testament as meekness at different points. We see that in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Gentleness is the opposite of being cold or harsh or abrasive or severe. Christians are to be gentle people. They're not contentious. They're not pugnacious. They're not quarrelsome. They're not looking for a fight. They're not ill-tempered or easily agitated. No, the Christian, brothers and sisters, is to be marked by gentleness. In fact, the same word used in our text in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2 for gentleness, it's the same word that's used with reference to pastors in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, which reads, And the Lord's servant, that is, the man of God, the pastor, the shepherd, the elder, must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness with gentleness. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications listed there for pastors, one of them is that he not be quarrelsome, but that he be gentle. Shepherds of God's flock ought to be marked by gentleness. And I should just say this this morning, that if there's any man here who desires the ministry, let him pursue a posture, a characteristic, the virtue of gentleness. Not only must you, my brother, be marked by gentleness, even to be qualified for the office of pastor, gentleness is a trait that is also lovely to Christ and so necessary in the work of pastoring God's people. A pastor is said to be a shepherd, and a shepherd must be gentle in pastoring the sheep. And he's even to be gentle, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, when correcting error. Gentleness is even to mark the correction of error in the church. My brothers, those of you who aspire to the ministry, listen to me. A gentle posture is by no means antithetical to bold and assertive leadership in the church. That is one of the great fallacies of our generation. That somehow gentleness is uh, exclusive to godly leadership. That's not true at all. 
In fact, where you will find a faithful pastor, so often the evidence, the fruit, the, the reason for his power in the pulpit and in the study is because of the secret power of gentleness. He's possessed with gentleness. My brothers, if you think that the pastor is about bravado, and strutting your stuff and preaching with a, trip, a chip on your shoulder, we don't need you. In fact, no church needs you. What churches need, what the sheep need, is men who possess the secret power of gentleness and meekness and understand how that affects their preaching and their pastoring and their counseling and their leadership of the church. Gentleness is essential to godly leadership in the church. And so, my brothers, those who wish to pursue the ministry, I encourage you to pursue the virtue of gentleness. But it's not just for ministers to be gentle, not just for pastors to be gentle. For Paul tells Titus to preach the very same to the Christians in Crete in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul says to Titus, telling of what he's supposed to be telling his people there in Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Isn't that a, a godly picture of what Christ's servants ought to be like, what his disciples ought to be like? They'd be gentle, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. Would that that would be true of every child of God. Uh, may every Christian be marked by a spirit of gentleness and be known for their courtesy and for their kindness. I'm reminded of a, a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He says, to me, a Christian means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. What a powerful statement. May we, brothers and sisters, by God's help, nurture a spirit of gentleness. Pastors ought to be marked by gentleness, but also all of God's people. We should be known as a people who are gentle, kind, and charitable toward all. Again, P.T. O'Brien is helpful here. He says this, This gentleness is not to be confused with weakness, but has to do with consideration for others and a willingness to waive one's own rights. Clinton Arnold says a similar thing. The term in this context, however, does not imply weakness, but self-control and a tempered spirit. And I say again, in the midst of a culture that teaches us all the time to treasure our own rights more than anything else, and to never allow someone to intrude on what we think is our due, isn't it good to know that God commends a spirit of gentleness, a willingness to waive our own rights and to show kindness and courtesy toward all. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I've already quoted them, Matthew 5 and verse 5. Blessed are the meek, or what could be translated the gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Who's going to own all the land in the new heavens and the new earth? It's going to be those who are gentle. And those who are marked in this life by meekness. This, the disposition that is gentle, compassionate, kind, temperate when facing difficulty in relationships in the church, that is pleasing to Christ and becoming of one of his followers and tends toward, contributes toward unity in the body of Christ. I'll just say before going on to the third characteristic, think brothers and sisters, these same two words, to be humble and to be gentle, are the same words that the Lord Jesus himself uses to describe his own heart. In that famous passage in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, what does he say? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. I mean, hum- could anything be closer to the heart of Christ? He describes his own heart as one marked by humility and lowliness and meekness and gentleness. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if the Lord Christ himself, the King of glory, adopts such a posture, should not we who profess to follow him? What could be more godly, more Christ-like, than to seek to emulate these virtues of humility and gentleness? But now the third and final characteristic. Look with me at patience. The Christian's walk is to be accompanied with patience, Ephesians 4.2 says. I need to be much more brief here for the sake of time, but this is the idea of forbearance or long-suffering. The idea is that patience is exercised when hardship or some kind of obstacle is encountered in a given relationship in the church. There is forbearance. The Christian is willing to suffer long with a brother or sister. And how necessary is patience in the church? Think about that. Exercising patience, long-suffering, forbearance. How necessary is that in the church? Well, I'll say this. It's only necessary if you are participating in the church. If you are living life on life with your brothers and sisters. If you're on the outskirts, if, uh, if you kind of just are spotty in your attendance and never really involved or incorporated in the life of the church, I guarantee you, you will probably not have to exercise a whole lot of patience. But if you're among the body of Christ and you're participating or you're living life on life with your brothers and sisters and you're in it for the long haul, your patience will be exercised. As we get closer in our relationships, there becomes more need for patience. Bearing with one another's burdens, bearing with one another's weaknesses. And Paul's expectation here is that God's people, when they gather together and they're living life as a community of God's people, they need to be marked by patience. They need to be long-suffering with one another and be willing to bear with one another's weaknesses and deficiencies and failures. And again, I can't help but point once again to the Lord Jesus Christ. Observe His tenderness and patience with His disciples. How He bore their weaknesses. How He labored to help them to grow in the faith. How He overlooked their failures and their faults. And how, as John says, having loved them, In the world, he loved them to the end. Don't you want to know what that's like with your brothers and sisters in the church? You encounter a difficult relationship. You have to exercise patience and forbear. I'm going to love this brother or sister to the end. I want to make it. I want to win the relationship. And I want to love them with perfect patience, just as the Lord Jesus loved his disciples. One closing thought before going to the priorities of the Christian's walk. One closing thought on these characteristics before moving to consider the second point. I wonder if this has occurred to you. All three of these virtues, humility, patience, gentleness, that are to accompany every Christian's profession of faith, they are only necessary if you are in community with God's people. These virtues require us to be in community with God's people. I mean, how can you exercise humility if you're just a lone maverick Christian? How can you take a lower posture and be a servant to others? It's just you, right? But if you're in the church and you're among the body of Christ and you know something of what it's like to have in your mind the mind that was also in Christ Jesus that actually got on the floor down on one knee and washed the feet of the saints, well, then you'll understand what it means to adopt a humble disposition. Then you'll see the need for this crucial virtue of humility. How about gentleness? If it's just me out on my own, I could act any way I want. I don't have to be gentle toward anybody. But in the church, you see the need in the community of God's people, the need to be meek and to be gentle with God's people. 
And the same is true with patience. You know, I used to joke, I, I thought I was a really patient guy when I was single. I mean, the, the, the only occasion I would ever have to exercise patience was if traffic was moving slowly. You get married, you're going to realize if you're going to live with somebody long term, uh, you're going to learn to be patient, put up with some things, and learn how to be forbearing and long-suffering and to love someone with perfect patience. These virtues require us, brothers and sisters, to live an intentional life-on-life community if we're to exercise and realize the virtues of this passage of humility and gentleness and patience, which are all so necessary and so vital for the preservation of our unity. Well, now, secondly, notice with me the priorities of the Christian's walk. Remember that illustration at the beginning of the sermon? If you, if you had to commend the priorities, uh, that would be the priorities of all the churches in Winston, what would you commend? Let's look at what Paul commends to the Ephesians in verses 2 and 3. By calling these things priorities, I don't mean to communicate that they're optional. If I say I have several priorities this week, I'm going to rake the leaves in the backyard... I'm going to uh, caulk the, the new uh, area in the ceiling. I'm going to do various choices. Well, those things don't get done. It's not the end of the world. Well, I don't mean to use the language in that way, that these things are optional. I mean to say that these things are matters of urgent importance. They're at the top of Paul's list for what the church is to be passionate about and thinking about and praying about. And so they ought to be for us. The first priority listed is bearing with one another in love. Verse 2, with all humility... And gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Statement, bearing with one another in love, and then statement in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those, those two priorities, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity, those are what we call participles. And they carry with them in this text the force of imperative. So I think we can read them as bear with one another in love. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One of the priorities for the Christian in his new walk, the first, as a child of God and as one united to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is that we bear with one another in love. It is important for Christians to be in relationships in the church that require them to bear with others. It's important to be in relationships that require patience and require long-suffering and require forbearance. Listen, it's easy to be in a church where everybody's easy to love. And it's just as easy to be in a large church and to find your particular clique where everybody's easy to love. You never have to be in relationships where you're required to exercise humility and patience and gentleness and forbearance and long-suffering. That's very easy. That's not the realization of this passage. We ought to regularly be in relationships in the church and among Christian people that maybe are a little bit hard to love. Maybe that require us to put to death some of our preferences. Maybe that require us to go ahead and get down on one knee and to wash some feet and to assume a more lowly posture toward our brothers and sisters. It's so easy to be around people that never offend you, never bother you. But listen, the picture we get in Ephesians 4 does not allow for cliques in the church. It doesn't allow for us to find our particular holy huddle where everybody you know, placates us and patronizes us and satisfies all of our particular preferences and interests. We're to love the whole body of Christ. And we're to bear with one another in love. And if you're in the church for many years at all, you're going to encounter particular individuals that may be a little harder to love than others. That's not a bad thing. That's why we have this priority given us by the Apostle Paul, that we would bear with our brothers and sisters in love. And I love that 
these two words are added at the end of the admonition, that we're to bear with one another in love. That's there in the end of the clause. It doesn't just say bear with one another. Tolerate one another. Put up with one another. Just grit your teeth and persevere and push on through and, uh, and maintain um, uh, safe face before that individual. And we're to bear with one another in love. We're not supposed to grit our teeth bite our tongues and press on through. There's something to be said about the affections that are to be in our hearts as we bear with our brothers and sisters. God is not pleased with the person who grits his or her teeth and says, you know, I can't stand this person. They drive me crazy, but I'm just going to endure. I'm just going to tolerate them, mind over matter. I'm just going to put up with them. That is not the admonition of this passage. We're to bear with our brothers and sisters in love. And what does love look like? I can't help but point you to 1 Corinthians 13. We keep returning to this text. But what is love? Verse 4 of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Do we need to hear that? Spouses, do we need to hear that? Children, do we need to hear that? Parents, do we need to hear that? Brothers and sisters in the church, do we need to hear that? Love doesn't insist on its own way. Way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And now seal these next words on your heart. Wear them as chains about your neck during the week. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Don't you want to experience that kind of love with your brothers and sisters in the church? A love that bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Paul has in mind someone who endures when a relationship gets difficult. Even when offense presents itself, they're there for the long haul. They're going to bear with brothers and sisters in love. Listen, being easily offended is not a virtue. It seems that everyone in our culture today is so easily offended. Let's not get lulled into that. It is not a good thing, a virtuous thing, a pious thing to be easily offended. That sort of posture is divisive. It's displeasing to God. It's ungodly, offensive to Christ. It grieves His Spirit. Being contentious and quarrelsome is not a virtue. Being unduly sensitive and prickly is not a virtue. Endurance, patience, forbearance, long-suffering, these are pleasing to Christ. Bearing with one another in love honors God. And it contributes to the maintenance and preservation of our unity in the church. And again, I could only point you to the Savior as the great model of bearing with others in love. But now secondly and finally... Sort of the most important priority of this text. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First notice its priority, this priority of unity. After three chapters and 66 verses of largely theological material, when Paul finally sets out to tell Christians how they ought to walk and what they're to do and how they're to live, what would you think would be the most important priority on his list? The first thing he's going to say. Therefore, I urge you to evangelize your neighbor. Therefore, I urge you to do everything you can to mortify sin. Therefore, I urge you to engage in warfare against Satan. Those are all good things. But the first thing he goes to is this matter of unity. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you've been called, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. But next, notice with me, it's urgent importance. The urgent importance of this unity. Our English translations don't really pick this up, but the language here has this idea of urgency about it. The ESV renders it eager to maintain. The New King James says endeavoring to keep. The NIV has it make every effort to keep. The NASB says be diligent to preserve. I don't think any of these translations adequately express the force of this imperative. It's a matter of urgent importance that the Ephesians maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The idea is that they're to keep watch. They're to be diligent. They're to be vigilant. They're to be eager and are to work hard at maintaining their unity. Now notice Paul doesn't say in this text they're to attain unity. Not to attain unity. Maintain it. Our unity's already been attained. It's been gotten for us, purchased for us. Where was it attained? Well, if you flip back over just a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, let me read those verses for us. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus Christ attained unity for his people. He got unity for his people, but we're to maintain that unity. Precious thing purchased for us at so great a cost. Now we must labor to maintain it. You are already, brother or sister, reconciled to your brothers and sisters in the church through what Christ has done on the cross. It is yours to lose. Christ has purchased unity for you, and now you're to maintain it. It's yours, it's ours to lose. Will you maintain it? Will you strive to nurture the unity that Christ has purchased for His people by His blood? The unity that we have been given was purchased at so great a cost. Therefore, we need to be diligent to maintain it. So many things Paul has in mind are going to threaten their unity. He says, be on guard, be watchful, fight against the attacks of Satan. Fight for love and harmony and peace and unity in the church. What we see here in these verses is that unity is not optional for the church, but is essential to the church. That is, it's of the essence of the thing. Unity is essential to what the church even is. And so we must be diligent, brothers and sisters, to maintain our unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace. You notice that this unity is a spiritual unity. It's the unity of the Spirit. It's that unity which the Spirit creates. It's a supernatural unity. It's created by the Spirit and it's maintained by Spirit-indwelt people. It is spiritually created, spiritually maintained And if it is a spiritual unity, a supernatural unity, then this unity is not realized by common hobbies and common interests or being in various cliques or groups of people in the church that are in the same phase of life as ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, uh, especially young people, but various people say, we really want to be in a church with people who are in the same phase of life as us. That's great. Lots of clubs you can join with people in the same phase of life as you. You're a young mother. There are all sorts of young mother's groups. Uh, You're a a youth, young person, college student. Lots of coffee shops that cater to youth and young people. 
Okay? There are seniors groups. There are businessmen and women's groups. The church is not a social club where we gather around with people in the same phase of life. There's nothing supernatural about that. People don't look at that. Oh, okay, so this is the millennials church. Millennials like hanging out with millennials. Nothing supernatural about that. I got that question a lot in the planting of this church. Well, what demographic are you trying to reach? Is it millennials? Is it young families? It's never senior citizens. I don't know why that one doesn't come up. Are you trying, who are you trying to reach? Listen, if our goal is to reach millennials, we could just open a coffee shop. All sorts of coffee shops that cater to all sorts of types of people. But we're the church. It's the unity of the spirit, not the unity of liking the same stuff. Or having kids who are the same age. Or uh, having a large singles group, because I'm a singles person and I need a singles ministry. Right? It's the unity of the spirit spiritually created by God and maintained by people who are indwelt by the Spirit. And may we ever evidence something of that supernatural spiritual unity in our body of believers. Christian unity is not ultimately realized by being a group of people who are in the same phase of life as us. Our unity is spiritually and supernaturally generated by God Himself and is realized in a common gospel and a common Savior and a common Father, and a common Spirit through whom we all, each one of us, have access to God, and a common mission, and common burdens, and common warfare, and common worship. That is the unity of the Spirit. And then we read finally, it's to be maintained in the bonds of peace. And this is the ministry of Christ Himself. He binds us together in the bonds of peace. Ephesians 2.14, For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and to you who are near. What's the first thing Jesus says when He appears to His disciples after His resurrection? Peace be with you. Earlier on, before He went to the cross, He says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. I give My peace to you. His ministry was one of peace and the unity we experience in the church is to be realized in the bonds of peace that Christ alone provides. When closing, brothers and sisters, I hope that you see that there are a few things that rise to a higher level of importance in the New Testament than the need to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Listen, it's a grievous thing, something we ought to weep over, how flippantly and how frequently Christians divide from one another. It's not a godly thing. Sometimes... There's need to divide from particular brethren. Sometimes it's necessary to do that. But I I contend that even then, it grieves the heart of Christ. It's just, I've been in different contexts. I'll hear people joke about dividing from people in their church. You know, I was in this church, and then we we split the church, and we needed to do that. And that is not a godly or wholesome or attractive thing. Fracture in God's church is grievous to Christ. And we should not so frequently and flippantly allow division to enter the church. And I'm not just thinking primarily about various denominational groups that split off from one another ad infinitum. I'm talking about people in the church who divide from one another and go years and years without speaking to each other. People who systematically avoid one another in the same assembly of God's people. In light of this text, could anything be more displeasing to Christ? But you know, here's some people sometimes brag about this or joke about this. 
There are some people that go their whole lives long going from place to place, from church to church, injecting division in each congregation they're in. And once they've sufficiently divided that body, they move on to the next one. Listen to me. You don't want to be anywhere near to that person on the day of judgment. Christ is serious about the maintenance of unity in his body. He does not want fracture in his church. He wants the maintenance of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I've said this before, but as pastor of this church, as I consider our congregation and the bright future that is before us, I don't think the great test for us in the next three to five years will be whether or not we hold fast to sound doctrine. I could be wrong. Always necessary, always vital to hold fast to sound doctrine. That'll be the test for 20 and 30 years. But I think in the next three to five years, the test for us will be here. It'll be on this issue. Will we allow division to enter our church? Will we be eager to bear with one another in love and maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? By any measure, brothers and sisters, I think that we've had a really great start. I mean, really, I think God has blessed us. I think there's reason to believe He's with us. He's done wonderful things in our midst so far, even in these very early months of our church's existence. But don't forget, don't want to throw a wet blanket over that. But the Ephesians got a good start. Got a great start. They saw revival. And apparently they were commended, even in the early chapters of Ephesians, for their love for one another. And what happens, maybe 40 or 50 years later, not even two generations later, the Lord Jesus is writing a letter to them in Revelation chapter 2, and he's threatening them to remove their lampstand, to take away that very thing that makes them a church. And why is he doing it? It's not because they're not holding fast to sound doctrine. He commends them for that. He says, you're discerning with regard to doctrine, with regard to false teachers. What's the issue? You have left the love that you had at first. He threatens them. It's going to be over for them. Well, listen, we should thank God for the great start that we've had. But may we ever be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let us be a people marked by the things contained in this passage. Such a lovely picture. People who walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity that Christ has purchased for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is your word. This is your truth. And we rejoice in it. And we acknowledge this picture of your people and of your church as being marked by these characteristics and virtues. Being marked by these priorities. It is an exceedingly lovely picture to us. It's a wonderful thing. And it's something that we as a church wish by your help to emulate. And so, so would you work in each one of us the virtues of humility and lowliness and meekness and gentleness and patience which are so precious to you and so close to the heart of Christ. And would you teach each one of us what it means to bear with one another in love and to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Bless our body, our assembly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.